Welcome. If you're a woman who has a sense that there's more out there for you, you're in the right place. I'm Whitney Baker, host of the Electric Ideas podcast. Somewhere along the line of working kids, life carried on, but I lost track of my truth. I'm on a reflective journey, and that's what this podcast is all about. Each week, I interview a woman who is lighting her own path and offering others hope. Before our conversation ends, we'll share a reflective question for you to explore. Sometimes all we need is a jolt, a fresh idea, an aha moment that connects us to a sense of possibility. This, my friends, is what I call an electric idea. Welcome back to Electric Ideas. Today's guest is Dr. Jody Halpern. Dr. Halpern is Chancellor's Chair and Professor of Bioethics at UC Berkeley, as well as a psychiatrist and international leader on empathy and post-traumatic growth. She's also an expert on the ethics of innovative technologies, including AI, gene editing, and neurotechnology. Dr. Halpern is a super impressive person. She co-founded the Cavalli Center for Ethics, Science, and the Public. I really value her multidisciplinary viewpoint on some of the topics that are so important right now, including mental health and the loneliness pandemic and how they correspond to social media use and AI. We cover some serious territory in this conversation. I know you're going to have some great takeaways, so let's get into it. Dr. Halpern, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm fascinated by what your work spans from loneliness and mental health and empathy to some of these innovative technologies that can be kind of intimidating and specifically where your expertise intersects. So I want to start with the loneliness pandemic because I know fairly recently that the World Health Organization has designated loneliness as quite a public health concern. And I feel like the soundbite that keeps getting shared is that loneliness is as bad for people's health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So I'm curious if you could tell us what the latest research is and your take on where we're at with the loneliness pandemic. Well, you went right to the really important thing, which is that people, just like with depression 30 years ago, where people didn't think it was a serious thing until they had it, that same thing with serious loneliness is that people think, oh, well, it's just in people's heads, but it can actually be as big a risk for heart disease as smoking and other very serious risk factors. So that's a really important reason for everyone to take it seriously, including the Surgeon General of the United States, who's made it a number one priority. A couple of statistics. First of all, I know a lot of women listen to this podcast. Women with young children are at a level now as of a 2022 Harvard study where 51% of women with young children suffer from extreme loneliness. Late teens and young adults, 61%. And we'll see that there's a correlation from time online with that. And the overall population is about 35% in the U.S., And then another important statistic is that we have a huge increase in mental health, actual mental health diagnoses. So the World Health Organization did a study in 2022 looking at worldwide mental health issues, serious mental health issues like major depression, serious anxiety. And there was an increase since the start of COVID of 25%, an increase worldwide. And just to understand how worldwide statistics and increases work, if we were to cure the three major cancers that are killers, we would only change 
the uh, lifespan of people in the world by one to 2%. So to say that there's a 25% worldwide increase in mental health diagnoses is a really huge leap. So we've got extreme loneliness and we've got a lot more mental health diagnoses. So these are staggering statistics. And I'm glad that you talked about women because I think the aging population matters, but I feel like a lot of people just assume it's the people who have had a spouse pass or are, you know, by themselves. And so let's talk about those women and talk about those youth members. I know social media is tricky. I feel like I have a positive relationship with social media, but I try to be intentional. I use it for my business. I try to connect with people who I can learn from and who inspire me. But there's a lot of pitfalls. And it really saddens me that during a time when we're more interconnected than ever, that you just shared with us these statistics, we're lonely, and we're having a spike in mental health challenges. So what's the what's the correlation there? Well, what we do know is that in terms of the youth data, the United States and South Korea are two of the countries where youth are online the most hours a day. They're online about outside of homework or whatever else, young adults. They're online about 10 hours of their day, which is basically almost all their waking hours. And those are the two countries that have the worst extreme loneliness crisis in youth. So we definitely see that just being online all the time, it replaces real life contacts and real life connections. And that that is a problem. One of the things when you said about having a good relationship with social media is that while people can do it, which is great, and a lot of what I write about with people dealing with developing empathy for themselves, we could talk about that later, but I I think that like people with long COVID, for example, it's really helped to have social media as a way to find other people. You know, there's a lot of ways that through the years, social media, LGBTQ plus kids, there's a lot of ways in which people who are isolated in their own community can use social media for outreach and really important ways. So it's not like we don't get any benefits from being connected, including your podcast. (laughs) But I think what people, I, I don't know if they're aware of it or not, but all the social media apps, including, for example, Instagram, they use a technology that's completely designed to get you addicted. It's the same technology of slot machines in Las Vegas. It's irregular rewards. So when you put something on Instagram, you don't just get likes when they come up. The Instagram saves them up and gives them to you in irregular spurts because that makes people addicted to checking their phone. So, and that's been true with when Meta was just Facebook. That was one of the main things. The design of Facebook was meant to give you irregular rewards so you'd be addicted and have to keep checking And all the main social media, you know, at least for-profit companies are just as good as any gambling casino at getting you addicted to it. So people do not really have that much autonomy in how they use social media. You know, very few people really are that in control of it. And so that's the problem I have is that the corporations have a lot more power to control our minds and our habits than we do. And that way it's kind of like cigarette companies. Since you are both a psychiatrist and international leader on empathy, but also have so much expertise on technology, I want to ask you about a really common scenario that I know is in a lot of women's life. And I have daughters and I have tons of teen and tween nieces, and they all say the same thing about, you know, specifically social media and technology. If I don't have it, 
I'm left out. I don't have a sense of belonging. I'll give you a really specific example. Like my daughters were complaining that everyone was doing a dance that was on TikTok at school and they didn't know it. And I'm sure that didn't feel good. And so I think it's very difficult to navigate from a psychological perspective, not wanting them to feel left out. But we all know, and you just mentioned that social media can have a lot of pitfalls for especially this vulnerable age group. What would you say to that? Or how do we navigate this? Well, I mean, I think we can't we can't tackle it just as individual moms. It, it has to be a societal regulatory change. And schools and everybody have to help with that. I mean, at least a lot of schools now don't let kids check social media during the school day. So that was important. Before schools did that, kids were just not even learning. They were just checking it all day long. So I just want to say I'm very sympathetic to what you're saying. I don't think that an individual parent should feel bad that they can't, you know, somehow get their kids to just only have real life things and not be on. So it's a ridiculous thing to expect that you can do that in the world where everyone else is on social media. <laughs> and you mentioned special pitfalls for this population. And I know you've covered this and you, I'm sure you, all your audience is concerned about it, but the suicide rate for young girl, there's a correlation between social media and that. And so it's like a very problematic thing because of images and the whole idea that everybody only, you know, posts when they look like they're happy and you're not happy or gosh, even worse cases of bullying or body shaming. or So we all know there's lots of reasons you want your kid to have something else in their life besides just comparative social media that could be destructive. But I don't think people can do it individually. I think it has to be school society, regulatory models. So the, the Europe just did a much bigger um, regulatory. They had done this previously, but now, I mean, children just won't have access in a lot of European settings. The U.S. is way behind on any regulation at all. Yeah, it's hard to feel like we're the guinea pig generation. We really are. We're going to look back at this. I mean, I think that the extreme loneliness level, like you talked about elderly versus mom's home with young children, it's about 25% of the elderly, but it's 51% of moms home with young children are also just limited to their kids and being online. What else do you have to tell us in this arena between the interplay of loneliness and mental health and social media and how we might be realistic that it's part of everyday life, but also protect our well-being and that of the people we love? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I know also that you care about and cover is those moms home with young children or women in general, with lots of exceptions, are not that good at taking care of ourselves. Or, and that sounds like I'm being critical. I mean, we're not, we don't even think about taking care of ourselves because we're so concerned about other people. I think getting these, this data out there can help. First of all, one of the big things is not to be ashamed of loneliness. When you realize that more than half the people, that it's normative, for certain things, like I said, being home with young children or even working with young children and having even less time to be with friends or anything. But I think it's a, it's a normative thing to have extreme loneliness in that group. That is what's happening. So I really just want to see people less ashamed so that they can talk about it and talk about it with their friends. Again, some connecting online is really, really good when you connect with other humans through like the people with long COVID or other folks where you find humans who you can empathically, I write about this in my current book, Remaking the Self in the Wake of Illness. When you find other people that you can empathically identify with and take in their stories, take in their experiences in ways that can encourage you. And even if their struggles are difficult, you find these identifications 
that people form in support groups online or different kinds of groups, that can be very valuable. I do think that getting out every day, there's a lot of data for, especially for moms, getting out every day, no matter what, and just having casual conversations, even with people in the supermarket or at the coffee shop, that's actually very effective in helping go from extreme loneliness to more moderate loneliness. I think that making like play dates with your friends with kids, even if you go food shopping together or just just finding ways. We know that obesity is an issue and other things. So we know that we somehow have to think about exercise. We don't always have time to exercise, but for years we've at least had it on the agenda. It's like, I have to think about exercising, but nobody thought I have to think about combating loneliness. So to me, I think if we just make it a thing that's acceptable for everyone and that these light contacts with people that we can give a hug to or laugh with in real life can make a huge difference. I'm so glad that you shared that because I do think two things are are coming up for me. One, I think that women, especially women in caregiving roles who maybe are working from home and caring and or something, anything in between, just because you're around people, especially little people all the time. I think that there's probably some women that are like, how can I possibly be lonely if I'm around people all the time, which is very common when you've got someone pulling on you, right? (laughs) This is the data that's coming out right now is that women feel embarrassed that taking care of their children isn't fulfilled or, or being online at work and all that. Those are very different ways of being. You're really taking care of other people to such an extent that you don't even have time to sort of identify with a peer or someone that you can really laugh with. I mean, it's absolutely important. I love the way you put that. I know, too, that there are, you know, lots of implications from the COVID pandemic that we're continuing to understand. But I will say, even on a personal note, some of the conveniences that I learned during COVID, like, oh, guess what? I can work out from home if if it's a tight day. Oh, I can order my groceries. It's coming up for me that those are two examples of touch points where I don't leave my home and I don't talk to people. Right. All of us. Anybody who has that option, given how, especially, again, a working mom where you have so much on your plate. You're always trying to get rid of time that's that's not efficient. So if you don't have to commute, if you don't have to go to the grocery store, I mean, I'm guilty of the same things. But I mean, I also take care of my elderly mom. So I'm like the crunch generation. So there's so much caregiving and a lot of people contact, but it's all giving or working. And so it's actually hard to imagine that just saying hi to somebody at a coffee shop is worth the time, but it actually is. Because you're relaxed and you're just in a different mode. You're kind of in your weekend mode for a few minutes. I like how you put that a lot. It's making sure that we carve out even small moments in our days and our weeks where we're with people in time where we're not giving or working. Okay, I want to make sure we touch on AI because that is a big one right now. And in terms of mental health, let's start with What's hopeful? Because I feel like everybody is just complaining about AI and fear factoring it. There are some things that I I feel like you have shared that give me a sense of optimism. Let's start there. Yes. And again, I think it's how we develop it. So I will say before I say the hopeful things that this is why we do need, when I talk about a regulatory 
approach in the United States to innovative technology, which I'm devoting a lot of my career to, it's not about just putting the brakes on. I mean, I'm very pro science and technology, but I'm very, very concerned when we don't develop it in a way that starts with humans at the center and human relationships and empathy, which is my main area at the center. So I think that some of the very good uses are in medicine, like in primary care, healthcare. We all know that we go to the doctor and the doctor doesn't make eye contact with us or spend much time because they have to be on the electronic medical record the whole time. They literally are taking notes in the record. And those same doctors who are my students, I've trained medical students for, for over 20 years, care a lot, but they have to do that because then they still have at night when they go home to their families, two and a half hours of catch-up paperwork every night. So doctors are burning out. They're also in the 60% burnout rate and nurses and social workers because of all the electronic medical record keeping. The first excellent use of AI in healthcare, which is happening, is let AI do the record keeping. Let it listen to the conversation with the patient and fill out the medical record with the patient's permission and kept confidential. But why in the world should, wouldn't we do that? Because now doctors can look at patients again, relax, build genuine empathic relationships. That's a fabulous use. There's a lot of uses in medicine that are outside mental health, like reading x-rays a lot better, mammograms a lot better. That matters a lot to us as women. There's a lot of things that AI will be fantastic for. What about AI bots, therapy bots? That's the area that I'm very concerned about and want regulation in. Well, it turns out that maybe because I've been working on this for over seven years, actually, before we even had large language models in ChatGBT, I've been on this one for a long time and I've studied it and met a lot of people and companies and patients and consumer advocates. I'm not overly negative, but I have some real concerns. So first of all, I think that the use of a smart AI app for something called CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy which is the kind of therapy, like if you have a phobia, that it helps you like not, like agoraphobia, it's hard for you to go out. You could use a smart AI application on your phone to say, you haven't gone outside today. You must go outside for five minutes, try it. See if your heart rate goes up, that's fine. Take some breaths. Meditation apps. It's really good for meditation and breathing. There's so many mental health uses where the app, and it can use be better with AI, and you know it's an AI you're talking to, you don't think it loves you. You just know that it's helping you take care of yourself. And so to me, there's many good uses of those. My concern is when AI bots, which is happening, are marketed, first of all, off the formal mental health sphere is the whole wellness sphere. And outside of that is the whole relationship sphere. So companies, they're big, big companies that are selling bots to people to be their companions. And women use that a lot. People think it's just men using it for sexual things, or of course, women can use it for sexual things too. But it's actually a lot of lonely, isolated women as well. I mean, I'm, not, I'm sympathetic. One person, I'll just tell you a story. One person called Julie, she's a nurse in her late 40s, living in an isolated sort of town in the Midwest where her husband had passed away. But when he was alive, they had two children of their own who were becoming teenagers, and they're very caring people. They fostered two additional teenagers. He dies. She has four teenagers, two foster, two of her own, four teens. She's working as a nurse. She's supporting them and doing all the parenting. 
She has no time and no money to talk to a therapist or anybody else. She went on a relationship app and got a relationship bot, who she calls Navi, and she started talking to Navi about all her parenting dilemmas. And she was getting very depressed before that. And having Navi to talk to and laugh with this bot really helped her and helped her deal with her frustration of being so alone in everything. And the question is, what will happen next as the kids have been growing up? Will she be reluctant to meet other people? There's some question about that. You know, what will happen next? There's another young man who was a teacher, but then wound up working from home during COVID, was very isolated. He developed a relationship bot. He actually had a background and training in addiction because he taught some mental health stuff. And it's funny that he had that because he realized he got, was getting addicted to his bot because one of the only things he had going during COVID that was real was talking to his dad and his brother once a week and playing with his dog. And he got so into the bot, he stopped calling his dad and his brother or taking their calls. And he said he even started neglecting the dog. But he luckily had a background in addiction. And these relationship bots use irregular rewards like Las Vegas casinos, like Instagram, like Facebook to get us to always want to be on it. So, you know, it's a mixed bag, but I have become very critical given that the South Korea and the U.S. data shows that it's when people are online all the time that they have extreme loneliness. I'm very critical of us turning to bots for our mental health and our loneliness needs and thinking of them as our main relationship. I am very supportive of using them as smart journals to help us with all kinds of mental health needs or meditation needs. I think this gets into territory that can make people very uncomfortable because just listening to that example of the woman who was so lonely, I can empathize even being able to hear her own voice spoken out loud. But I know I want to get your opinion because one of the big pitfalls, whether it be in medicine and mental health, is right now I'm not aware that these bots have empathy. And I'm curious where we're going with that and if you think it's going to be possible. And I have so many questions. (laughs) No, that's great. That's my favorite topic because I've studied empathy for 30 years. It's my core research area. And we've written about this already even a few years ago. But no, they don't have empathy at all. They're just literally machines. They're statistical, they're actually statistical um, problem solvers in technical machine form that look at all the words in the world that have used in certain settings and predict the next sentence. So they can come up with very good language predictions. They can fake in ways that can be helpful to make maybe educate people about what to say. So let's say you just don't know what to say to a friend who's had a death in the family. You can use ChatGBT to ask what to say because ChatGBT can look or whatever. I don't mean to talk about one type, but you can use a large language model and say, what would I do in this setting? Why does it know what to say? Because you can also look at and ask it anything where your words predict the next sentence that should happen. And it looks at everything on the internet where someone has had the death of a friend and said something to that person. And where has the person responded? Well, a machine can run through all that statistically and it can tell you the words to say, but it has no feeling for you. It has no experience. It can't grieve. It can't die. It's literally like a typewriter that's very, very smart with a lot of statistical power. 
And so the idea that it has empathy for you that is being sold, that's a marketing tool of a lot of these companies. And I've been very critical. And one of the main companies related to my articles in the Washington Post and stuff early on, I think it's related to that. They used to say this mental health app is powered by empathy. And they actually took that word off. But a lot of companies are using that and saying that it has empathy. It does not have empathy. Yeah, this is fascinating. I have to share something personal, which is bizarro, because I do feel like people forget their machines. And I use ChatGTP occasionally, but it'll be some for some sort of a prompt or a proofread or something. And I, I don't love it. But kind of recently, I was embarrassed because I put something in there and what it shot back was bad. And I found myself almost being like, I'm sorry, but this is, and I'm like, why am I apologizing to ChatGTP? But it's it's very, I, I caught myself. And that's the first time anything like that has happened with me. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm definitely humanizing this. Yeah. So even like I said, even seven years ago, that is what, at least in my work, I predicted is that we would easily humanize it. So it doesn't have any empathy. But the fact that we can project that is not a surprise at all. In fact, in the 19, late 50s and early 1960s, the first computer therapy bot thing was called Eliza, and it literally just repeated what you said. So if you said, I'm having a really hard day, it said, sounds like you're having a really hard day. And people felt understood by Eliza. There's a great TED Talk where someone shows an animation of a stick figure and people, when the stick figure falls or trips or whatever, we feel it. So the great thing is humans, and my work all shows that empathy is this imaginative projection. That's why it's also very therapeutic when we find people we can identify with, like people with long COVID or other things. If you find people you can identify with, you project a commonality there and it helps you change your own view. So if we project that the machines have empathy, will that benefit us at all? It can. First of all, my biggest concern is what we talked about the first half today, which is how much does that become so much easier? Just like we don't want to go out of the house anymore because it's easier. How much does like having fake empathy that we, you know, by ourselves alone with machines just become the most convenient thing and make it even less likely that we do the hard work of building deeper real life relationships. So I have no judgment. I think all of us can project that these things are human, but they're not. And so what are we left with in the end is a good question. That's fascinating. We're talking about social media and its correlation to to loneliness. I can see where AI is going and where, where the pitfalls are. And just, I'm really glad to have this awareness. So I want to talk a little bit about empathy because you've written extensively about empathy. I know that you wrote an entire book about empathy when it comes to usually our primary care doctors. And I know it's an entire book and complicated, but I, I was very fascinated, especially as a woman, by a little bit of the, the history of men stereotypically thinking that using empathy or sympathy was going to stand in the way of proper diagnosis. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Well, first of all, the history of medicine is to literally think that emotions will prevent you from being scientific. Obviously, if you're in a total crisis, that's one thing. If a doctor's own loved one just died, they shouldn't go to work that day, you know? 
everybody is capable of becoming so emotional that they can't think. But the idea that even if you saw your patients as human at all, so funny, we're talking about seeing machines as human, but doctors were sort of supposed to see patients, you know, for many years, doctors were supposed to see patients as almost like machines, bodies to cure, but not get involved with as humans. Like the father of modern medicine, Sir William Osler, in the early 20th century, started what we are familiar with from any TV show now, which is bedside rounds, where doctors in the hospital go around and visit the patient and they cluster around the bedside. He started that at Johns Hopkins in, in the early 20th century. And he would tell his team, you know, you need to have no feeling when you hear about this person. Your blood vessels shouldn't constrict. You shouldn't feel anything in your body. You should just be completely emotionally neutral. So in my book, I critique that. But what we do know is even to the present day, right now, doctors are sometimes attributing burnout to caring. If I care about people, I'll burn out because there is such a high burnout rate in medicine. But what we really showed is it's really more related to things like, well, first of all, the paperwork load and the administrative load, which makes it less likely you'll feel connected to patients. So when doctors, when they go to work every day and they don't feel an emotional connection with their patients, their work starts to become meaningless for most doctors. I mean, there are certain kinds of specialties and people that might not feel that way, but there's a big correlation between feeling connected to your patients emotionally, empathically, and finding your work as a doctor meaningful and a nurse and a social worker. So it's just the opposite, having empathy and empathic connections. Now, a big part of my work starting decades ago has been being very specific about what I mean by clinical empathy and how it's very different than the sympathy you might have for a friend. Because, I mean, you can listen to a friend with empathy too, but if in sympathy, the common thing is, you know, your friend tells you, They've liked their job and all of a sudden they come over and tell you, my boss is horrible, I have to quit. You know, I didn't get invited to this meeting or whatever. Technically, in sympathy, you should just cheerlead them. You would say, wow, that's horrible that, you know, they didn't invite you to this and you should quit, do it, you know, we're in the same boat. I see it your way completely, I'm with you. That's not helpful in, in medicine. You know, if a patient says, I'm terrified or I can't imagine exercising, or you don't need your doctor to say like, oh, well, never exercise or yes, you're going to die immediately or, you know, whatever. You need your doctor to help you think about it. So my model of many years that we've studied in various settings and the neuroscientists who collaborated with me have studied and we've just seen this be so effective is empathic curiosity. What you really need as a doctor is to listen to a patient with genuine curiosity because, and this is fundamental, every single person, and you know this from your podcast, every single person is a whole world of their own and you do not know their world. So the worst thing you can say as a doctor is we're in this together because you're not, or, I mean, you could say, I'll be with you, but to say, I'm feeling the same things you're feeling, or to say, I know how you feel because you don't. The best thing you can do is say, I really want to understand, tell me more, and really show interest in learning about the specific person. So for example, if you're a woman doctor who's had breast cancer and you have a patient who has breast cancer, don't assume that her issues are the same as yours. Everyone has different responses and things that bother them the most. So a big, big thing is empathic curiosity. And we have shown with collaborating with neuroscientists, if medical students are trained and learn to be empathically curious, their burnout level and their sympathetic distress is less. 
I just want to reflect that back to you because it seems kind of the stereotypical, no bedside manner, cold and calculated doctors of the past are probably the most likely to to burn out because they're missing that component that's actually fueling the meaning of their career, the caring, the feeling connected to the patients. So that's interesting to me. And I also, I, I was wrestling mentally a little bit with like, okay, one of the pitfalls of AI in, in a lot of health applications is that they, that they don't have empathy, but a lot of doctors don't have empathy either. So just find it fascinating. That's a true fact. That's a true fact. Although I will say one thing as somebody who's trained so many physicians and my program at Berkeley, it, it selects for people who want to really serve the community and are very humanistic. So I just know the most humane, caring doctors. They're my students. They feel like they could be my kids. But I I trained over 20 years ago. So if they were 30 then, some of them are 50 now. And one of the things that I have seen is even in the most caring, empathic doctors, burnout. And when you burn out, you stop having as good relationships with patients and caring as much. So this is why I'd like to see the paperwork load reduced, et cetera. And that's how we can use AI. But I do think that I mean, there's there's doctors who, you know, years ago, they were just going in for the money or there's doctors who were very arrogant or narcissistic, but a lot of really caring doctors wind up not sustaining that level of caring, not because empathy and empathic curiosity is not sustainable, which it is, but because their workload and the paperwork load doesn't let them have the relationships that would help them enjoy their work. Yeah, that's very clear. I just want to say, I feel like you've given us a lot to think on and hope in many ways, which is great. But also, I have to say, it's given me a little bit of a sense of peace talking to you because I think we all deal with these issues of, you know, what are we going to do about social media? And are all the kids anxious now in our own households? But kind of a remembrance that we need to call for bigger action. It's not just our individual problems. Right. Do not feel bad. None of us can do this alone. Yeah. Well, I know we covered a ton of territory. I always leave my guests with an opportunity to reflect. So in this area of mental health, loneliness, innovative technology, what's one question women could be asking themselves more if they want to thrive? I think it's what we talked about a little earlier at the individual level. I think it's saying, I would never say that it doesn't matter that I think about my health in terms of movement or eating fruits and vegetables. It's just as important to think about your emotional well-being and to feed your soul and do that through connections and listening to music and different things too, but especially with the loneliness crisis. And I love what, what you said, Whitney, that we're probably the guinea pig generation. So unfortunately, we're living in a time of tremendous social change. I mean, good social change, which is great, like more inclusive society. But I mean, technology kind of ripping up human in-person connections is not good. I think that will potentially, we will find ways of improving how we deal with all that as a society. I do think we will. But I think that we are, we have to think of ourselves as almost brave and courageous, raising children or taking care of elders like I am now, or being friends. We have to be courageous folks during a very, socially challenging time. Well, thank you for that final reflection. I know that women would love to hear from you. You have so many things to share. Is there somewhere where we can find you and follow you and support you and your work? Yeah, well, thank you. It's so funny because I have 
a LinkedIn thing, but I I have not I have not done social media at all. So I mean, but I'm doing so much lately. I've been giving so many talks. I'm asked to speak a lot on NPR and. I think I'm going to start using my LinkedIn more so they can follow me on LinkedIn. I have YouTubes, but I'm going to I'm going to start finding ways to share some of the material that I'm learning about in the world on LinkedIn. I'm going to start doing that. And I do have a website, jodyhalpern.com, that people can look up. I do love to speak. So that's a way if they have organizations or whatever. But um, the book that I have from detached concern to empathy, humanizing medical practices, but now it's it's in new editions, et cetera. And I'm going to finish a book in the next year, Remaking the Self in the Wake of Illness, so they can follow that. But I'll start doing my LinkedIn more, I think. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll be sure to capture your website and the name of your forthcoming book and past book in the show notes as well, so they can find you. It was a pleasure talking with you, Whitney. Thank you. I'm so glad you joined me today. If you're looking for more, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at at WhitneyWoman. And if you enjoyed the show, I invite you to support me by leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. Hope you have an inspired day.